0: Okay, people, I'm going to read Psalm twenty seven. And I invite you to listen to it and see if there's a line in it that's for you. Psalm 27. Yahweh is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Yahweh is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to devour my flesh, my adversaries and foes, they shall stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war rise up against me, yet I will be confident. One thing I asked of Yahweh, that will I seek after. To live in the house of Yahweh all the days of my life. and to to behold the beauty of Yahweh, and to inquire in his temple. For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will set me high on a rock. Now my head is lifted up above my enemies all around me, And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to Yahweh. (coughs) Hear Yahweh when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. Come, my heart says. Seek his face. Your face, Yahweh, do I seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You who have been my help. Do not cast me off. Do not forsake me. O God of my salvation. If my father and mother forsake me, Yahweh will take me up. Teach me your way, Yahweh, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Do not give me up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they are breathing out violence. I believe that I shall see the goodness of Yahweh In the land of the living. Wait for Yahweh. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for Yahweh. (coughs) Okay, shout out. which, Which line of those you think is... Best. You're such miseries. Come on! Shout out! Wait for Yahweh. Right. I don't mind waiting for Yahweh. I object to waiting for you. (laughs) Right. Wait for Yahweh. He is more reliable than you are, too. tell you the line I think many of us need which is, well actually it's just the the phrase, it's actually one word in Hebrew one thing one thing I asked of Yahweh that that will I seek after because I think um, in the context of the lives of most of us it's very hard to be able to focus on one thing there are so many things that make demands upon us, so many obligations we have, so many things we need to do or think we need to do Um, and uh, I like the several phrases, the several uh, passages in scripture that talk about one thing. Let's sing, sing this song Faithful one, so unchanging. Ageless one You're my rock of peace Lord of all I depend on you And I call out to you Again and again I call out to you Again and again You are my rock in times of trouble, you lift me up when I fall down. All through the storm, your love is the anchor. My hope is in you alone. And let's sing it in the plural, as our and... Uh, and uh um, we, Faithful one, so unchanging, ageless one, you're our rock of peace, Lord of all, we depend on you, and we call out to you again and again, We call out to you again and again. You are our rock in times of trouble. You lift us up when we fall down. All through the storm your love is The anchor, our hope is in you alone. Gracious God, we say that to you. We say it to you for all of us, because in a way we all need to say it. We say it to you for those of us who are especially in need of calling out to you at this moment, who are in times when it seems as if we're falling down and it's times of trouble and it's a storm. And we ask that you will make your love uh, the anchor for us Uh, at this time. We ask it for all of us. We ask it especially for those who particularly need you to be their anchor uh, this day, this moment, this week, this quarter. And we pray that as we continue to study the scriptures together this evening, our awareness of what that means and our conviction about it being true uh, may be built up some more. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <coughs> so here's the, in the first half this evening is the uh, the last of the times that we shall spend uh, on the Psalms. Uh, I'm, going to, I'm, call, I'm going to talk about um, Psalms of Trust with that title at the top there. How to keep hoping. And the background uh, to um, looking at it this way uh, is this when. Gunkel divided up the Psalms in the way that he did, he got, as I, to use the terms that I used, three main types, the hymns, the songs of praise, praising God for what God always is, and the uh, laments or protest Psalms of the community or of the individual, uh, complaining about the fact that it's not working out that way, and the Psalms of thanksgiving or testimony, uh, the ones that then give thanks to God for having responded to that protest, that lament that prayer. Again, with um, there being singular and plural versions of those, according to whether it was more the community or more the individual. And that division is, uh, that, that division is fine, except that you end up with, ra- with more than half the Psalter coming into the middle category, the category of um, laments or protest psalms. So it looks as if it, it ought to be divisible in some way. It's a rather too general a term. Uh, and what that's led me to think in terms of is that, or, or to, take al- to make allowance for the fact that amongst the Psalms of protest or laments, uh, there are some at an extreme end um, of um, angst, hopelessness. Psalm 88 is the great example, uh, where there seems to be more or less no hope at all, where it's simply uh, protest and lament. And then there are ones right at the other end, that are uh, declarations of trust, um, like, say, Psalm 23 or Psalm 27 that we said just now, really, in which the element of hopefulness and trust is much more dominant than the element of protest or lament. (coughs) And I'm not suggesting that you can divide them into two types like that, because it's a spectrum. Uh, I haven't done this, but you could probably... Um, list out all the laments, as I have done in the um, syllabus, and then put them in order of um, hopefulness and desperation, if you see what I mean. Uh, The highest level of desperation at one end and the highest level of hope at the other end. It would be interesting to do that. Uh, Because they do combine some element of hopefulness and some element of um, protest or lament or appeal. They all do that, but the balance between them differs. So what I'm suggesting doing is seeing that there, while there are many that are dominated by uh, protest, there are also many that are dominated by trust or by hope. Um, and they aren't better, one one of those types isn't better than the other. Uh, both are there because both are ways in which um, the people of God need to be able to pray. Uh, and we do people a disservice if we suggest that they ought always to be able to pray, Psalm 23. Um, but we also do people a disservice if we give people, d- don't draw people's I- uh, attention to the fact that there are those Psalms of Trust. Um, and so that's more the focus of what we're looking at just now. So the, the title of this evening was uh, Psalms of Trust. And the title at the top of, the, of, of page 88 is How to Keep Hoping. As I put there on that, on that page, a large number of the Psalms that are usually classified as laments put the emphasis more on expressing an attitude of hope and trust and commitment. So that's why I'm treating them uh, separately from the main body of the laments. And there's a list of the ones that I put in this category. Uh, You could argue about them. Some of them you might decide better fitted in the protest laments. Or you might think that some of the protest laments uh, fit better under Psalms of Trust because that's the nature of this exercise of seeing that there's a spectrum of um, the balance between Protest and trust in uh, in that in that kind of psalm. So what that led me to look at uh, was what was the nature of this hope of this trust, and uh, I want to talk a bit about the content of the trust that these psalms express, uh, and then the basis of it. What is it that you're trusting God for? What's the content of it? Um, and here are three elements. First, uh, a confidence, a trust at the fact that God is watching. Um, now, I think sometimes people uh, are a bit put off at the idea that God might be watching you. Every breath you take, every smile you fake, I'll be watching you. Um, if God's watching me, then I'm in dead trouble. You know. Perhaps your mother said, just remember God's watching you. I may not be able to see you, but God can see you. <laughs> Uh, And there is a real sense in which it's bad news if God is watching you. But if God is watching the guys, if God is keeping an eye on you, then that's different. We have, um, just near near where we live, there's a a street where some of the local kids uh, play a lot. Uh, And I was worrying about the the fact that they were always playing in this street. Because it seemed dangerous. It's a very minor uh, little street. Um, And so it's not much more than an alley, really. And yet, if some car came along like me, came along, whoosh! The kids could be in terrible danger, until uh, I realised that one of their parents is always out there watching them, um, and and that's an image that the psalm suggests for God's relationship with us. That God is watching us, and God is also uh, watching the people who might be watching us. you are watching watching the uh, the troublemakers, the people who might be watching us in a negative way. So Psalm eleven uh, begins by saying. Uh, To other people. I take refuge in Yahweh. How can you say to me. Flee like a bird to the mountains. For look the wicked bend their bow. They fitted their arrow to the string. To shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed. What can the righteous do? Here are some good friends. Saying to somebody. It's very dangerous the line you're taking. You could be in a lot of trouble. Flee. Get out of here. Like a bird. Go and take refuge somewhere. And this. You might think, possibly stupid psalmist, but he's in the Bible, so it can't be too bad. Responds by saying, Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. And you might think that means, oh, therefore, ex- Yahweh is um, distant. Yahweh isn't involved. Yahweh isn't um, watching what's going on. Yahweh, as it were, is like a parent sitting watching TV while the kids are playing in the street outside. But that's that's not... The point in the psalm is not that Yahweh is in heaven and therefore doesn't get involved. It's that Yahweh is in his holy temple. Yahweh's throne is in heaven. And therefore, his eyes behold, his gaze examines humankind. Uh, That he keeps an eye on what's going on. So that the children down in the street are safe because uh, the parents, at least in the... I'm going to get mixed up between the parable and the reality in a minute if I'm not careful... (laughs) Um, The parent is not getting too involved so as to spoil the kid's game, uh, but the parent is um, keeping an eye on things in a a position to make sure that no danger comes to the kids. An image that the um, Psalms sometimes use uh, in this connection is to speak of God's palace in the heavens as by analogy uh, with the king's palace in the city. Uh, now, you know how David's palace was at the top of the city. That's why he could get into a lot of trouble by going out on the roof and looking when he shouldn't have been looking. <laughs> but the uh, idea of the king being able to look from there down on what's going on in the city is an important image, an important reality, and an important image for the way the Old Testament thinks. Because it, it pictures the, the way in which the king is able to know what's going on in the city and therefore do something about it in a positive way, not in a sinful way. Uh, and it thus pictures God as, as it were, in His palace up in heaven, um, but but able therefore to look over the wall of the palace and see what's going on down. Oh yes, I better go and do something about that. Yahweh is watching. Same in the, there's that expression in Psalm four, Psalm fourteen. Fools say in their hearts there is no God, uh, which means sort more, more something like God isn't there, God isn't involved. They're corrupt, they do abominable deeds, there is no one who does good. Yahweh looks down from heaven on humankind. Uh, Yahweh is watching. Second, then, related to that, Yahweh keeps me safe. Uh, And that's an emphasis in Psalm 27 that we just read. Uh, It's an emphasis in Psalm 23, uh, which I so much appreciate uh, now living where I do, where I know what um, uh, dark canyons alike. I know. I can, I can picture the reality that Psalm 23 is talking about in a way that I couldn't um, when I lived in England. Uh, Yahweh is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in right paths for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil. No evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff. They comfort me. So I'm a sheep who might get pounced on by a cougar, or a snake, or a lion, or something like that, uh, any minute. Uh, And I wouldn't know where to find green grass, and I wouldn't know where to find still water, were it not for the fact that I have a shepherd who knows the answer to those questions, and also a shepherd who is carrying a hefty club um, to make sure that he can deal with anything that comes and attacks me. I'm not afraid of evil, that is, I'm not afraid of something bad happening, because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Yahweh keeps me safe. And Yahweh puts the wicked down, which again links with those uh, other descriptions of Yahweh. For God alone my soul waits in silence, Psalm 62. From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall never be shaken. How long will you assail a person? Will you batter your victim? All of you, as you would a leaning wall, a tottering fence. Their only plan is to bring down a person of prominence. They take pleasure in falsehood. They're blessed with their mouths, but inwardly they, course. they, they curse. For God alone my soul waits in silence. He alone is my rock and my salvation. My fortress I shall not be shaken. On God rest my deliverance my honour. My mighty rock, my refuge in God is in God. Trust in him at all times, O people. Pour your hearts before. Pour out your hearts before him. God is a refuge for us. Those of lowest state are but a breath. Those of highest state are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are altogether lighter than a breath. Put no confidence in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. Here are the two elements in systematic theology that's been said about this psalm. Two elements in Old Testament theology. One, two. Once God has spoken, twice have I heard this. One, power belongs to God. Two, steadfast steadfast love belongs to you, O Lord. For you repay to all according to their work. So I can trust in your faithfulness to me because I know that you are active uh, in putting the wicked down. The the threefold content content of trust as I think emerges through the Psalms. Um, But how do you know that those things are true. Um, two sorts of bases for trust um, and various um, <coughs> subcategories within those, two ba- basic, uh, list within those two basic forms of um, basis for trust. Uh, and none of these um, arguments for making it possible for you to trust are going to work all the time, I guess. Some, sometimes, some of these bases for trust will be under pressure uh, and then you'll turn your minds to others. There are bases for trust that lie in my own experience. There's the fact that um, God has spoken to me on my own. I bless Yahweh who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I keep Yahweh always before me. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. I've known Yahweh speaking to me personally. Um, I know Yahweh's presence in the temple. I've known Yahweh's presence there. Psalm 84. How lovely is your dwelling place. Or how much loved. It would have at least as valid a way to um, translate it. How much loved. Uh, <coughs> how love worthy is your dwelling place. Yahweh armies. My soul longs indeed it faints for the courts of Yahweh. My heart and my flesh sing for joy to the living God. Being able to go to the temple is like being invited into Yahweh's backyard for a barbecue. The courtyard is where the sacrifices are, where, where there's going to be a meeting where Yahweh welcomes his friends uh, into a backyard barbecue. Um, how, how I long to be able to be there again, because I know how terrific it is to be able to go there. What a lovely place it is. Even the sparrow finds a home there, and the swallow nests for herself at your altars. How fortunate are, the, uh, are people when they're able to make the uh, journey to Jerusalem for a festival. Maybe you can only do that once a year at most. And how much you look forward to that. And how much you look backward upon it afterwards when you've been able to go and enjoy that. Almost as good as going to the Super Bowl was it to go to the temple uh, for a barbecue there. Because a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I have to live the other. I have to live a thousand days down here in Lachish amongst these wretched Canaanites. I'd rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than live in the tents of wickedness but I've got no, tr- no choice really because this is where my farm is. How terrific to be able to uh, go there into that special presence of Yahweh. Well then there's the um, basis for trust in the fact that Yahweh has kept me safe in the past. I, 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 I substituted the expression Yahweh armies for Lord of hosts. Have I talked to you about that? No? Okay. Uh, in that expression that you get in English Bibles, Lord of Hosts, um, you can see that the word for Lord is the name Yahweh, because it's in all f- four capital letters. So I have talked about that, haven't I? Yes. Right? Uh, but then, then the word for hosts is the ordinary Hebrew word for uh, armies. It's the word you get on the back of a military truck uh, in Israel. Uh, so the expression more literally means Yahweh of Armies which is kind of wi- wi- as weird an expression in Hebrew as it is in English. Just as to say, Golden Gate of armies, or Barack Obama of armies, kind of doesn't make a great deal of sense. It's a strange expression. Um, and, and maybe it's not an of, maybe the of is inappropriate, hence I, tra- I often, I usually translate it Yahweh armies, almost Yahweh who is armies. But one way or another the expression indicates that, <coughs> that all the powers of heaven, and in effect all the powers on earth, Um, are under Yahweh's control and are at Yahweh's disposal. So the title, Lord of Hosts, Yahweh Armies, is a very powerful title to describe the powerfulness uh, of God. Um, (coughs) Yahweh keeping me safe in the past. Uh, I'm going to the second of the Psalms, i put there, 129. Often they have attacked me from my youth, that Israel now say. Often they've attacked me from my youth, yet they've not prevailed against me. I can carry on putting up with things, because I've known God delivering me all through these years, and therefore I can face the future on the, on the basis of the way that God has looked after me in the past. Fourth basis for trust in my own experience is Yahweh's material provision. Psalm 67 <coughs> ends up with the earth has yielded its increase God our God has blessed us. May God continue to bless us let the ends of the earth revere him. The fact that God has provided in the past is the basis for, reco- for reckoning that God will provide in the future. Sixth basis for commitment uh, is sorry, excuse me, Uh, one, two, three, four, fifth basis basis for commitment, basis for conviction, for trust, is my commitment to Yahweh. Psalm 119 um, is a psalm that appeals to that a large number of times because it's a very long psalm. Uh, Psalm 119 uh, has 176 verses uh, which you will immediately perceive divides by 22. It's 22 times 8. Uh, Because you know that 22 is the number of the Hebrew alphabet. Um, So that phenomenon that we've seen in Lamentations, where the poems expound the nature of uh, grief um, and mourning and repentance in the thorough way that they they do by talking about it from A to Z. Psalm 119 talks about a relationship with God from A to Z, you could say. Um, and so there are 22 sections each of 8 verses and um, all the first 8 verses begin with Aleph and all the second 8 verses begin with Beth, the second letter and all the third 8 verses begin with Gimel, the third letter and so on so it's cleverly done it means that there's no logic uh, That that is the logic of the organisation of the psalm so there isn't any development in it and you can jump in at any point and w- read backwards or forwards doesn't make any difference really Uh, But you can draw out themes that recur uh, through the alphabetical nature of the psalm. Uh, And one of the things that recurs is the continuing appeal to the fact that I am committed to walking in your way. Just randomly, I just looked at it straight down and saw verse 22. Take away from me their scorn and contempt, for I have kept your decrees... Even though princes still plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. Your decrees are my delight. They are my counsellors. The next verse, it kind of changes. My soul clings to the dust. Revive me according to your word. So there it's God's promise that the psalm is appealing to. It doesn't just appeal to my um, commitment to walking in your ways. It appeals to God's commitment in terms of promise as well. Verse 30: I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your ordinances before me. I cling to your decrees, Yahweh. Let me not—excuse <coughs> me—let <coughs> me not be put to shame. Uh, the psalm keeps coming back to one of the bases of being able to uh, claim an ongoing, proper relationship with God is being able to say, "Okay, I'm a sinner," and the psalm acknowledges that. I don't get everything right, but basically, I'm a person who is committed to walking in accordance. With your word. And that's part of the basis for my um, being able to trust in your faithfulness to me. And finally related to that uh, is um, my standing against wrongdoing in Psalm 139. And um, no, I, I, I'll, I'll, we'll, I'll talk about Psalm 139 uh, and your questions about it a bit more systematically later. So I won't get into that now. Uh, but you'll see when we come to that. And... Um, Why I've put that under that category. So there are some bases for trust in my own experience. But then there are some bases for trust outside my own experience. Now that seems weirder to us because we assume that the only reality is our own experience. It's not so. There are some realities outside of our experience. If we didn't exist, God would still be there. That's a strange thought, isn't it? It's a strange thought, isn't it? No, not really. It's a very sensible thought. But, it, but we tend to assume that the, the only reality is the reality inside here. And one of the things that the Scriptures push us to is to, yeah, by all means, owning the reality of inside here, but also not thinking that's the only reality. Basis for trust outside my own experience. There's that power and love of Yahweh that I've already drawn attention to uh, in Psalm 62. There's Yahweh's creation of the world And Yahweh's sovereignty in the world. Psalm ninety-three. Yahweh is king, he is robed in majesty, that Yahweh is robed, he is girded with strength, he has established the world, it shall never be moved. Your throne is established from old, you are from everlasting. The floods have lifted up Yahweh, the floods have lifted up their voice, the floods lift up their roaring, more majestic than the thunders of mighty waters. More majestic than the waves of the sea. Majestic on high is Yahweh. And the psalm is looking back to... It's picking up the idea that the creation of the world involved Yahweh in getting control uh, of um, hostile powers and uproarious powers. Leviathan and Rahab and other strange characters. Not the Rahab in Joshua, but the Rahab gets mentioned in the psalms. Who were kind of embodiments of, of power that resisted God at creation. And it asserts, God got a control... Of all other powers, the the world is secure. Yahweh is sovereign in the world. There's Yahweh's deliverance of the people at the Red Sea, which was another assertion of that power. <coughs> the um, the end of Psalm 77. When the waters saw you, God. When the waters saw you, they were afraid. The very deep trembled. The clouds poured out water, the skies thundered, your arrows flashed on every side. The crash of your thunder was in the whirlwind, your lightnings lit up the world. The earth trembled and shook. And you could think that the psalm is talking about those acts of creation at the beginning, but it goes on then. Your way was through the sea, your path through the mighty waters, yet your footprints were unseen. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So the psalm is looking back to what God did at the Exodus, as a basis for carrying on, to being, a- carrying on being able to uh, trust God in the present. When you're tempted to ask the question that comes earlier in the psalm, will the Lord spurn forever, never again be favourable? Has his steadfast love ceased forever? Are his promises at an end for all time? Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? If you're tempted to think that, to ask that question, then you go back and uh, look at the way that God acted at the Exodus. Or in the context of life in Jerusalem, you look at the way that God has expressed a commitment to Jerusalem. Psalm 46. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore we will not fear, though the earth should change, though the mountains shake in the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though its mountains tremble with its tumult. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of the city. It shall not be moved. God will help it when the morning dawns. Nations are in an uproar, kingdoms totter. He utters his voice, the earth melts. Yahweh armies is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Come behold the works of Yahweh. See what desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. You see, there's something to see. The psalmist can say, come and have a look at what's happened. There are other psalms that say, go and have a walk round Jerusalem and look and see its walls are still there, aren't they? People attacked them and they didn't manage to take them. And in light of that, you can trust now. In light of that, be still and know that I am God. Um, In other words, stop fighting. Uh, It's a classic example. There is no spirituality of silence in the psalms. There is no spirituality of silence in the Bible, actually. Uh, the spirituality of the Bible is a noisy spirituality. Now, because we live in a noisy world, we need an, a, a spirituality of silence. So, we have to take verses out of the Bible that mean nothing to do with that in order to be able to use them. So, we can say something like, Be still and know that I am God. And that's kind of okay. But it's worth seeing that in the context, Be still and know that I am God is not an exhortation to go on a retreat and go and sit in the mountains quiet for three days. It's saying, "Stop fighting, will you?" Which is what one of the translations—one hasn't got the "will you," but one of the translations has got. "Stop fighting." How foolish to you that you should think that you can defeat God and defeat the city when God has shown His commitment to it. And then remember God's commitment to David, which the Psalms uh, uh, (coughs) refer back to a number of times. That's how Psalm 132 begins. Um, Yahweh, remember in David's favour all the hardships he endured. Uh, In other words, here we are, 100, 200, 300 years later on, long after David's day. But we want you to remember what David did on your behalf. And to maintain your faithfulness to David by maintaining your faithfulness to us. So the psalm describes the efforts that David put into uh, moving the ark to Jerusalem. And the way in which God uh, made a promise to David uh, that there had always been one of the sons of his body reigning on the throne in Jerusalem. A promise that's um, recounted in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Um, so, so God and David and Jerusalem are all tied up together. <coughs> God has made a commitment to David. That therefore David's people can always claim. Yahweh's commitment to David. Uh, and then uh, Yahweh's specific promises. And as I mentioned already. Uh, Psalm 119. Uh, has got lots of um, promises that people are claiming. Um, in appealing to God to, to reach out to them. So. So. The verses I read just now, this is verse 25 for instance. My soul clings to the dust, revive me according to your word. You promised to be the kind of God who revives, so do it. My soul melts away for sorrow, strengthen me according to your word. Confirm to your servant your promise, which is for those who fear you. Let your steadfast love come to me, Yahweh, your salvation according to your promise. Then I shall have an answer for those who taunt me, for I trust in your word. Do not take the word of truth utterly out of my mouth, for my hope is in your ordinances. Specific promises of Yahweh. Now... When it comes to the moment that you uh, are, are put on the spot and you need something to trust, then uh, it is an advantage to you if you've got in your mental armoury those kind of realities that the psalms speak of. If you want to be able to uh, maintain trust, if you want to keep, be able to keep hoping, then you need to have assimilated the content of the trust uh, that the psalms um, encourage you to have, And the kind of basis for trust that you have to appeal to if at some moment you need to be able to appeal to them. Um, Now I'll say something about Psalm 139, including some things I was going to say. But some things that arise out of your postings on Psalm 139. Uh, One reason why Psalm 139 is worth um, having a look at is that it doesn't fit very well in the categories of the Psalms that I've I've described. Um, (coughs) The inclination of um, commentators on the Psalms is to to assume that all the Psalms ought to fit into these categories, Uh, and it becomes a bit artificial. So uh, what Psalm 139 illustrates is that not every psalm can be designated a hymn uh, or a lament or a thanksgiving. Um, There is what's been called uh, literary psalmody. That is, here's a poet or a person who's praying who's working independently uh, of the categories that normally people worked with. And my suspicion is that Psalm 139 is an example of that. Or it's such a distinctive example of um, one of the categories, that it all, that it's not really worth putting it into a category. One of the um, points that people noticed in the psalm is that there are a number of points at which the translations differ a lot in the way that they uh, translate it, and some people thought that the translations must be cheating or something like that. Um, and. Got a bit annoyed about them, really. Which, and it's good to get annoyed with um, translations and commentators and lecturers, professors, and people like that. Um, <coughs> somebody asked, for instance, that in verse 23 there's the word thoughts, but the TNIV and the NASB have got anxious thoughts. The adjective anxious was added to the translation, or was it omitted from the original text? Have the simplified portrayals of Scripture undermined the depth? Of God's love and meaning and intent for his people. Who sets the standard of whether the translation is accurate? It saddens me to see the richness of scripture being lost in translation. I understand the value of translating the Bible into more modern and approachable context for seekers and others. But this makes me wonder how much has already been lost amongst the various translations. Uh, and two or three other people also commented on the, uh, the varieties between the translations. Now, the... Uh, I I think that's more of a problem with Psalm 139 than average, and that's partly why we're looking at it. Um, And there might be more than one reason why it's a problem with Psalm 139. Uh, There are some weird, there are a number of weird words, and the variation between the translations is partly because some of the words are simply uh, uncommon words. And uh, one. Theory about Psalm 139 is that it must be a Northern Israelite psalm, and, and so it's a bit dialectical. It's a bit to do with the fact it's a bit comparable to the fact that you can't understand one in 20 of the words that I use because I speak a different kind of English. Uh, it's a different kind of Hebrew that the person uh, is writing. And there are some points at which afterwards you'd say, "I have no idea what he meant by that." And likewise with Psalm 139, sometimes the commentators really don't know uh, what the person meant by that. That's not just true at Psalm 139. There are other examples in the Old Testament um, where we just don't know the meaning of a particular word. It doesn't happen very often. Don't panic, guys. Um, 99% of the time, it's, uh, it's, it's clear. But sometimes it's not, and that's part of the variety and the, the rootedness of these scriptures. Uh, one of the implications is, therefore, um, don't preach on too short texts. Don't base your sermon, or for that matter, your whole spiritual life, um, on a line which, if you compared it with some other translation, would turn out to come totally different. Be a bit careful about that. It's a good um, argument for preaching on long texts so that ambiguities about, uh, uncertainties about a particular uh, word don't, uh, aren't going to affect the whole. But there's another reason why Psalm 139 in particular um, is tricky and that, f- and that translations differ. And I spotted this when I was um, a year or two or three ago, when I was precisely dealing with the phenomenon that you guys have, uh, some of you guys have noticed. The translations differ. So I thought, I need to have a look at the Hebrew of this psalm in order to work out... Well, in particular, the thing that I noticed is, sometimes the way in which the first part of the psalm describes God's knowledge of us, and God's involvement with us, in a way that's really rather encouraging. And sometimes it is uh, rather scaring... It it does imply that God is something like the cosmic policeman, um, who's got his hand upon you uh, in a rather uncomfortable way, uh, and who you do worry about knowing everything about you. And so I tried to get back to the Hebrew in order to find out whether the language of the Hebrew was um, more positive or more negative, and see if I could get behind the variety in the translations um, over that particular issue. (coughs) And what I discovered... Was that the Hebrew is consistently um, kind of factual and non-value? It doesn't have the values written into it. That is, it's simply declaring God's knowledge and God's involvement without using words that imply either this is good news or this is bad news. Uh, And uh, it is—it's not the only, although it's the only example of this particular kind that I know of in Scripture. It's by no means the only example of where Scripture is ambiguous, is open like that, where you can read it two ways. Uh, and the result of that is that is, the, is a phenomenon that I've referred to uh, on that uh, page, near the top of that page, 89, that the openness and the ambiguity in the Psalms then means that they read you. That is, you think you are reading the Psalms, but when you find them being ambiguous, you have to look at, why, uh, why you read them the way you do. And that's one of the advantages of, um, for instance, the kind of discussion that sometimes people have in their postings and the kind of discussion you might have uh, in a uh, church uh, study group, when you find that different people read scripture in different ways. And, and one of the things then to do, by all means, is to see if, one, if somebody's right and somebody, somebody else is simply wrong. But another phenomenon that is often there is that that we read the scriptures out of the background of who we are, or what our assumptions are, or what our questions are, or something like that. And we reveal to ourselves, and to other people, what's going on in us by the way that we read scripture. Um, And then when we do that, that makes it possible for there to be a kind of feedback thing in which we ask, well, uh, am I right to read things that way? Am Am I right to make that kind of assumption? if I read um, the description of God's involvement here in a wholly positive and comforting way, why am I doing that and am I justified in doing that? Or if I read the description of God's involvement and God's knowledge of me in this psalm in a very threatening way, why am I doing that and am I right to do that? So that a process of God's spirit being at work in us is is paradoxically is encouraged by the scripture not being clear. Because it encourages a process that goes on in our own um, (coughs) self-awareness. Then I've just put as a heading on the sheet here, um, does Psalm Psalm 139 indicate that God knows everything? And there are some questions along those lines that a number of you um, asked. (coughs) And maybe in response to those questions in general, uh, I could put it like this. There are around, at the moment, in theology, there's a thing called classical theism and a thing called open theism. Classical theism says um, God knows everything, God is everywhere, God can do everything. Open theism says uh, it doesn't make sense to say that God knows everything. For instance, it doesn't make sense to say that God knows things that haven't happened yet. Uh, And God is in relationship with people and so God doesn't know about the decisions I haven't taken yet. And some people feel very strongly that classical theism is right, and some people think very strongly that open theism is right uh, and, and and different people uh, were reading i think psalm one three nine um, in both of those connections both of those directions it, it is actually a text that gets quoted by classical theists people who want to emphasize that God knows everything on the basis that it begins. Um, the way it talks about, Yahweh, you have searched me and known me. Uh, you know when I sit down, when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. Even before it's words on my tongue, Yahweh, you know it altogether. Um, and yet, over against that, what's strange about the psalm um, it is that it doesn't say that God automatically knows all about me. It says that God looked and found out all about me. So the psalm doesn't agree with open theism or classical theism, it seems to me. Um, and, uh, and, and I'd say that more generally about the way the classical theism and open theism um, correspond with Scripture, um, that there are aspects of open theism that correspond well to the kind of way that Scripture talks, and aspects of... Did I say that right? Aspects of open theism that correspond well to the way that Scripture talks, and aspects of classical theism that correspond well to the way Scripture talks. But there are other sorts of um, passages and insights expressed in Scripture that conflict Classical theism and conflict with open theism. Classical theism and open theism are both philosophical views that people bring to Scripture uh, and then uh, utilize scriptures to justify um, the view that they take and sidestep or explain the ones that don't seem to fit their perspective. But the, but they that's and that's typical of a process whereby we, we come to scripture with a view and we, see to try, we try to make Scripture fit in with it. When typically, uh, it, will, um, it will say, well, yes, but, with the, for both of these views. Psalm 139 <coughs> has a very dynamic understanding uh, of God's involvement. God can know all about us. God can be everywhere. You can't get away from God. Uh, <coughs> and yet, it's, um, it, it's, it's a more um, dynamic Uh, understanding than, it's not that God automatically knows everything and is everywhere, so that the kind of understanding of God and God's relationship with the world that Psalm 139 puts before us is a much more dynamic and a much more interesting one, I'd say, than either of those positions with regard to God and the world that are uh, around in the kind of theological culture at the moment. Uh, let me talk about the last bit of the psalm. Because <clears throat> again, like that phrase, be still and know that I am God. Psalm 139 is um, a psalm that people like to use on retreats and in quiet quiet days and things like that. As long as you're allowed to stop at verse 18, because nobody wants to read verses 19 to 24. <laughs> um, <clears throat> and, and so it then becomes a puzzle... How can this person who is of such deep spirituality, to judge from verses 1 to 18, suddenly say those things that come in verses 19 to 22? Um, How how can the psalm be one thing? Um, uh, And the the answer, I think, is that even though I've suggested it is the case that verses 1 to 18 can be read either way as comforting or threatening, um, with regard to God knowing all about us, what is clear is is that if you know, if you acknowledge that God knows all about you, then you, you know there's no fooling God. And the declarations in verses 19 through to 24 are, are declarations that you dare not make if you think that God can be fooled. It's typical of the Psalms that people know that they are surrounded by the wicked, the bloodthirsty, people who speak of Yahweh maliciously, people who lift themselves up against Yahweh for evil, people who hate Yahweh, people who rise up against Yahweh. (coughs) And the question is, what is going to be my attitude to people like that? Am I I going to pretend that I don't have anything to do with them when really I do? Or am am I really against them and what they stand for? And what the psalm is saying is, in light of the fact that I know that Yahweh knows all about me, and that I know that I can't get any way, anywhere away, I can't get go, get anywhere away from Yahweh, then I declare uh, that I am totally against those people. That when I read about people involved in uh, genocide in Sudan, say, or when I read um, about some things that have gone on in our own country, in um, just recently, in 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 people who've been killed, that I don't have anything to do with that. I don't I don't I don't want to associate with those people in any way. Now, some people in their in their um, postings uh, <coughs> implied that the people who had been talked about at the end of the psalm there are their enemies, whom therefore they ought to love. But the thing to note is that the psalm is not saying um, these are my enemies. The psalm is saying, these are your enemies, and because they're your enemies, I'm prepared to make them my enemies. Um, <coughs> Augustine said, I'm not sure whether it was with, with precisely, uh, directly with regard to this psalm or not, I can't remember, uh, that we are told to love our enemies, but we are not told to love God's enemies. Um, and uh, the, the question in this psalm is about our attitude to people who are God's enemies, not our attitude to people who are our, who are our enemies. And one of the things that shows is you, you, have to keep read, you have to read carefully and see, for instance, in this case, what kind of enemies are being <coughs> talked about. You need also to take, take account of um, the strange, to our ideas, meanings of the words love and hate uh, in Old Testament and New Testament. You know that Jesus said you've got to hate your parents, didn't he? Right? You've got to prepare to hate people, said Jesus. Um, now, it's, it's a matter, not so much of a, an attitude inside your head, is that kind of hating, <coughs> but it's a attitude of what you do, of what, what, who you treat as more important, who you give in to. Are you prepared to go and serve me, or are you going to um, uh, 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 serve your family? It's put in very sharp terms uh, in the, the Hebrew and the kind of Greekized Hebrew that you get in the New Testament uh, of the Bible. Uh, it's, it's a stance or it's a practice more than a feeling is hatred and also love, of course. Uh, I mean, love in the Bible, likewise, is much more often, it's a thing, if you love me, keep my commandments. Don't talk that crap about feeling nice and Jesus-ish about me. <laughs> do it! Um, love is a thing that you do, not a thing that you feel in the way that the Bible talks um, it's always driving us into action. It's not it, again. It's that lack of focus on. It's not what's going on inside that ultimately counts. It's what you do. Um, and so the hatred here is, is not uh, a dislike of such person, uh, or at least not only that. It's saying, I will have nothing to do with them. I repel them. I won't go their way at all. And then, when the, thus, when the psalm comes in the last two verses to search me, O God, and know my heart, test me and know my thoughts. It doesn't mean, oh, maybe I shouldn't have said that that I just said. It means, I want you, I know that you can look into my heart and I want you to look into my heart so that you can see that my total loathing for those people and their lifestyle is something that I seriously mean. So, you can see if there is any wicked way in me uh, and lead me in the way everlasting. Yeah? So when Jesus talks about When I hear that, I think hyperbole to a certain extent. It's rhetorical hyperbole. You know? can, can we say that same thing with the Psalms? Um, well, in a way, that's another, that's another way of saying what I just said. Uh, I would, I'm not putting it in terms of hyperbole, but putting it in terms of the meaning of words. I mean, well, if, it's, if, it, if Jesus is being hyperbolic, what does he really mean? Right. Okay, but that means that means in the end, if your parents say, if your dad says, "I want you to look after the family business," and you say, "No, I'm going off to follow Jesus," that's it, it's it's not a it's a very that's a very very big deal. Um, yeah. But it's I think it's an, that's another way of, of of expressing the thing. But I'm expressing it more more kind of linguistically. Yeah. Um. I'm going to skip the rest of page 89 uh, and let's have two or three minutes in which you can talk to each other if you want to about whether I've just convinced you um, or any other aspects of um, any of that stuff about Psalm 139 or any of those things about trust earlier, whether there was one of them that you think is really important for you. Talk to each other for a couple of minutes about that. That's for saying, perhaps, uh, a we still free three, and I was kind of cool to see that perspective and see both of the views taking place. But the his name is Barth, Barth, Yeah. the book is called The Most New from Barth, Barth. It was really good. I was almost convinced. I think, I think it has value. It has some value to the, to the dynamics of wedding, what he we tries to approach saying. I don't believe that. But he's the You can grab a little bit of uh, important things. That was my education but Just you the story and the open the no one storing I'd i they use a lot of history from the old Excuse me. Do you know any uh, author or theologian who writes about open theism uh, from an Old Testament perspective? Uh, uh, yeah, um... I know Clark yeah, um, um... I read most move Mover from Clark Pinnett, but He, he uses a little bit of Old Testament, but not too much, so... Yeah, there are, um... Lewis Ford. Lewis Ford. L E W I S. if you can't find his stuff then email me and I can think of some more, but that's yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay people. <coughs> uh, anybody want to say anything about any of that or ask anything else where we've been? Okay, uh, on to page 90. Um, (coughs) We've been looking at these um, various ways of speaking to God that the Psalms illustrate. Um, And uh, as we come to the end of looking at the Psalms, I want to try to see how they interrelate with each other. Or to look at ways of interrelating them. What I've called here the interrelationship of praise and prayer. Uh, Movinkel Um, assumed that the essence of Israelite psalmody uh, was the hymn of praise. When he writes about the psalms, it's especially the hymns of praise that he sees as key to understanding the nature of psalmody. Uh, And I guess that's often been the case in in Christian uh, assumptions about the psalms. The psalms, um, insofar as they get used in worship and so on, it tends to be the praisey bits that get used. Uh, Vesterman, in his work, for instance, in The Praise of God in the Psalms, Emphasize the interrelationship between uh, praise and prayer. There's a quote from him. There is no petition that did not move at least one step on the road to praise, but there is no praise that is fully separated from the experience of God's wonderful intervention in time of need. So when you're praying for something, you're looking forward to being able to praise God for um, responding to your prayer. <coughs> and when you are giving praise to God, uh, you're, you've always got, you've got in the front, or at least in the back of your mind, the way in which God has intervened for you in um, in, in time of need in the past. There's inter-rela- essential interrelationship between praise and prayer. Uh, it's, two, it's a two-way thing, but it's uh, essential to the nature to an understanding of both praise and prayer that they are that they interweave in that way. And Vesterman draws a contrast with Egyptian psalms and with Babylonian psalms. Now I'm not sure how convinced, now 50, 70 years later than Westerman wrote his work originally, uh, how convinced that the um, ancient Near Eastern experts and the Egyptian experts are uh, by his point. It may be that he got too narrow a collection of data when he did when he made the point. Um, but making, but the contrast he makes is still illuminating for understanding the Psalm, the Old Testament Psalms. He draws a contrast then between Egyptian Psalms which he says only praise God in general terms, not, not in relation to God doing anything. <coughs> and he contrasts the Israelite Psalms with Babylonian Psalms, which only praise God as the lead-in to prayer, and never praise God just for the sake of praising God. Uh, so the uh, Israelite Psalms uh, emphasize that often you're praising God in light of God's having done something and not because of what God always is. And the Israelite psalms, uh, likewise, uh, are prepared to to praise God just for the sake of praising God, and not only as a lead into prayer. There's an interrelationship between praise and prayer, as uh, one of Brueggemann's ways of putting that. Praise has the power to transform the pain, but conversely, the present pain also keeps the act of praise honest. But can we say any more about the way that praise and prayer interrelate? Vesterman then talks about what he calls the vital tension filled polarity of plea and praise. Uh, <clears throat> but he then says that the center of that polarity lies in what he calls declarative praise. So here are his w- th- ways of describing the three main categories of psalm as three main ways of speaking to God. Uh, and he's starting off here with the laments or the protests. Uh, And he's suggesting that the laments or the protests lead into what he calls declarative praise. Praise in which you declare what God has done. Praise's characteristic form takes the form of God has, God rescued me, God has delivered us. You declare what God has done. That's the thanksgivings. And they in turn then lead into what he calls descriptive praise. In which you describe what God always is. When you say things like... God is, God does, God did if you're talking about the Exodus. But you're talking about things that are always true about God and not just about the things that God has done for you this week. And that's what you do in the hymns. So he says, laments lead into declarative praise. Declarative praise leads to descriptive praise. It's the declarative praise in which you testify to what God has done for you this week that are the the centre of this polarity between plea and praise. Brueggemann uh, asks the same question about the relationship between these three ways ways of speaking to God, and he comes out with a different answer. He starts off from some work of the philosopher and hermeneut Paul Ricoeur, um, who describes the nature of the way in which life develops for Christians, but also in a sense for anybody. Uh, Ricoeur is a Christian writing, but I think what he says is he doesn't just apply to Christians in which he suggests that the way in which our lives develop involves a process that uh, you start off, at least notionally, I mean, it could be any starting point, but let's start off with orientation, uh, which is the situation in which you know how things work, you know how life works, you know who God is, you know who you are, you know the answers. Uh, And then something happens um, that... um, leaves all that in tatters. Um, your, your child gets abused. Um, you lose your job. Uh, your spouse gets killed or, or goes off with somebody else. And everything you thought you knew about how life works and who God was and what God meant to you um, has all been, um, all becomes fragments. And that's an experience that Recur calls the experience of disorientation. You'd got an orientation. You thought you knew how things work. Now now you are disoriented. You have no idea how things work. (coughs) And the only way forward for you as a human being is to move forward into a, a renewed orientation which does justice to both what you know was true, what you knew was true and what you know is true about the original orientation. But also does justice to the experience of disorientation. That's recur. The, the, the sequence that you keep going through as a human being is orientation, disorientation, renewed orientation. Because today's renewed orientation becomes tomorrow's disorientation when something else happens and you have to think it all through again. And the, the, the growth as a human being uh, involves keeping going through that process all through your life. This is slightly irrelevant, but I've just reminded myself of the way in which... No, it's not irrelevant... When I was 25, I thought, okay, I'm grown up now. That's it, isn't it? Nothing else is ever going to happen, is it? You know, <laughs> no, it's just kind of, you know, going to carry on now for the next 50 years, whatever, and then I'll die. And then I remember realizing when I was 50 uh, that nothing could have been further from the case, from the truth, that, that you carry on in a process of discovering new things and seeing new things and seeing new questions, uh, and also as part of it. Um, of going through the disorientation that makes you realize that, that the way you looked at things yesterday, you're going to have to rethink. Uh, and if you're actually growing as a human being, it, that has to keep going on like that. I'm, I'm picturing it as a spiral because that's the way it goes. It keeps, um, it keeps going round, but you also keep going forward. At least you can do. Um, that's, that's recur. Uh, Brueggemann then said, that's what's going on in the Psalms. That is, the hymns uh, are the expressions of orientation. In the hymns, the songs of praise, you know who God is and you know how God works in the world. In the laments or the protest psalms, one of those things has happened that has made that world collapse. And you are, uh, in, in a psalm of lament, you are expressing disorientation. Uh, the only way forward uh, is to find a way of being able to look At what's happened, uh, that uh, does justice to the original to what you said the day before yesterday in a hymn, a psalm of praise, and also does justice to what you said yesterday uh, in your lament, Um, and and that may come as a result of a a kind of mental process whereby you're able to reach a, uh, a new orientation, but in the way in the psalms in which the psalms talk it's much more commonly that God does something that enables you to be able to affirm once more that God is faithful and God is merciful. Uh, And so you are then able to say once more that God's steadfast love endures forever. But in light of having gone through what you've gone through, what you mean when you say God's steadfast love stands forever uh, is different from what you meant the day before yesterday. So, (coughs) Westerman and Brueggemann have both got these linear understandings of the relationship between um, lament and thanksgiving uh, and psalms of praise. Um, what I found then kind of puzzled me was the fact that the two, th- the trouble with those two is that they both look plausible but they're in conflict with each other. They've got two different answers to the question what's the relationship between these, th- these three ways of speaking to God? Uh, and that made me infer that you need to put both of them into a spiral so that the The linear relationship between the three that Vesterman has got and that Brueggemann has got, you can still have room for if you've got them in a spiral of the kind that I've tried to describe in that diagram. Um, Because, as I was hinting just now in talking about that orientation, disorientation um, spiral, uh, (coughs) in an ongoing Life that's characterized by that experience and that's expressed in prayer in the way that the Psalms do, then you keep moving around that um, not circle but spiral, uh, in which you may come in at any point. Um, You may, uh, maybe you'll start with the praise of God, and then you have to move into lament, into lament, uh, and into plea, and into trust, and looking forward to praise. Uh, And then you're able once more, when God has acted, to give praise for God's acts um, so maybe, maybe you go all the way around the circle uh, but um, uh, but maybe you don't, maybe it's like um, the circle line in London that you just go in at one, come in at one station and get out at the next station um, which is roughly what happens in Psalm 88 you see it comes in at lament and it stays at lament then gets off again um, or, or maybe you come in at, um, at lament and go, and go round to praise not having started with praise Praise feeds prayer, and prayer feeds praise in in possibly a number of different ways in the interrelationship between them. Um, And you can find all of those elements uh, in that spiral, as I've laid it out, in Psalm 22, uh, which we've looked at at as a a, a protest psalm um, that uh, starts with protest but, but goes all the way around to praise. You can find them, uh, all of them, also, though, in a thanksgiving psalm, uh, which is starting from the fact that God has given me a renewed orientation, but then goes back over the process that uh, has brought me there. And you can find them in the <coughs> the extraordinary story in 2 Chronicles 20, which I mentioned, um, and which I'll paraphrase a bit more now, where... Uh, The king of Judah hears that there's a threatening invasion uh, from Moab and Ammon um, and Edom. And uh, he assembles the people uh, in the temple, proclaims a fast, assembles the people to seek help from Yahweh. And he stands and gives God praise. Yahweh, God of our ancestors, are you not God in heaven? Do not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations in your hand of power and might so that no one's able to withstand you. And so on. There's some recollection then at some length of what God has done. And then there's drawing God's attention to the fact that these um, people are invading. We are powerless against this great multitude that's coming against us. We don't know what to do but our eyes are upon you. Uh, then the spirit of Yahweh comes upon uh, one of the Levites. Uh, who declares to the people and to the king thus says Yahweh to you do not fear or be dismayed at this great multitude for the battle is not yours but God's Um, and then gives them some battle instructions how how to fight the battle do not fear or be dismayed tomorrow go out against them and Yahweh will be with you the battle is not for you to fight take your position, stand still see the victory of Yahweh on your behalf they worship God again the Levites uh, give praise Next day, they get up and um, march out into the wilderness. Jehoshaphat challenged them to believe uh, in Yahweh. Um, the Levites go with them, and they praise God in holy splendor uh, as they go out before the army. This is the way to run a, 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 a war, don't you reckon? You, first of all, you take out the biggest praise man you can find, and they go out ahead of the army. <laughs> Give thanks to Yahweh for his steadfast love endures forever. They sing. And while they're singing... Yahweh sets an ambush against the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the uh, people of Edom, um, so they end up fighting each other. Um, uh, and uh, then the people return to Jerusalem with joy, um, and uh, return to the house of Yahweh and do a spot more praise, as you can imagine. Now, there's the whole sequence uh, of that circle is also embraced. It's also covered by that uh, story in 2 Chronicles, as it's covered by some individual psalms. Maybe you're either um, a protest person or a praise person by nature. Though note the exhortation in Paul about rejoicing with the people who rejoice and weeping with the people who weep. Um, so that those of us who find it easy to rejoice are invited to learn to weep with people who weep, uh, and those of us who uh, are, are inclined to weep are invited to be drawn into the rejoicing of people who rejoice. So that there's both there's a kind of two truths that in a way are in conflict, but I think they looks if we ought to hold both of them together. It's both okay if you have a gift of joy, great. If you have a gift of weeping, great. Um, those are contributions to the life of the people of God. And yet at the same time, don't be, not to be confined uh, to your gift, but being uh, open to to, uh, ut- to to learning from, working with the other person's gift. Um, <coughs> just looking in the last minute or two of these other postings about Psalm 139. Oh yes, about um, Yahweh being present in Sheol. Uh, just note that the fact that the fact that God doesn't do things in Sheol doesn't mean it's, it's out of his control. You can't think you can go and hide in Sheol just because just, 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 just Yahweh doesn't do things there. Sorry, there's no way you can go where you can get away from Yahweh. Deal with it. Um. And then the interesting question of the implications of um, the description of Yahweh's involvement in the shaping of a baby for questions about abortion. Um, I think that Using, there's something wrong with the idea of using a piece of poetry that's designed as a piece of praise as part of some kind of ethical, legal kind of argument. So in, wha- in that sense, I don't care for the argument uh, for th- very much. Um, and yet, nevertheless, the um, wonder and rejoicing at the way in which God is involved with a person, not merely from the moment when they emerge from the womb, but through the process from um, conception through to birth it is worth noting. Uh, and the, uh, it, 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 when you see God being involved in that process all the way through, it's difficult to see how you can regard the entity in the womb as simply um, a thing you could dispose of, like a cyst or something like that. It's not that kind of thing to judge from the kind of understanding of the, um, the person before the person is actually born that the psalm puts forward. Go away, come back in 20 minutes.